Wayne, we finally did it. What do we do, Ben? We get Dave Grohl as a guest? Well, we didn't do that. What about Eric Church? Get Eric Church as a guest? Is that it? We didn't do that either, but... Oh, man. Then you got to tell me you got Shania Twain, my, my, my rock and roll crush. She's going to be on the show, right? We didn't do that either. We finally joined Patreon. Oh, we did, did we? We, we did, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help support the podcast. And, of course, depending on the tier that you select, you can get access to episodes a week before they go live to all of our listeners. And also as a special treat, at the guest revisitor level, you can join us for an episode to talk about one of your favorite records. And we might also just have a special guest join us for that episode as well. And all new Patreons at all levels will be invited to our first ever live stream event on May 18th when we talk about one of the greatest records of all time, The Clash's London Calling. And speaking of favorites, one of our favorite guests, Ira Elliott of Not A Surf, is going to join us for that live stream. So go to patreon.com slash records revisited podcast. That's all one word to sign up. And we'll give shout outs on our episodes for all new revisitors. So big shout-outs to our first four Patreon revisitors. That includes Kevin Peters, who's our first-ever patron. Thanks a ton, Kevin. Also, shout-outs to Tim Reed, Andy B., and Carly Anderson, all new patrons. Thank you all so much. And I'm going to be purging the closet. There's going to be some T-shirt giveaways at some point, too. And a few of those names you will hear on upcoming episodes because they joined at our guest revisitor level. I think one of them has already selected a Bruce Springsteen record to talk about. He did. He's already marked his territory on that one. All right. You ready for the actual episode? Absolutely. Cue up the intro music. Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who may not be known for throwing any muses, but he is known for throwing a hip or two in his day. Uh, Here's my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Oh, lot, Ben. I mean, I have never thrown a hip or a muse for that matter. (laughs) All right. So for this episode, we have a special guest. He was a member of Betty Goo. And he's worked with Paula Kelly, among others. But you might know him as the guitarist and the keyboardist and the the, the straight man for <laughs> one of our favorite guests, Matt Nathanson. Please welcome to the podcast, Aaron Tapp. Hello, Ben and Wayne and everybody. How you doing? Hello. I am uh, I'm pretty well, thanks. Yeah, it's good, a beautiful good. day here in Southern California. And uh, I've been listening to a lot of great music in preparation of this thing. So... Uh, Perfect. Doing all right. Perfect. Now, tell me what part of, of L.A. area you live in. We live in North Hollywood, which is uh, in the valley. For some reason, it's called North Hollywood. I guess North Hollywood Hills or something like that. But okay. it's technically uh, part of Los Angeles, but it's a nice big flat bunch of concrete. We're safe from fires and mudslides, and uh, we dig it. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, my, my best friend lives up in Castaic area. I guess, oh, he, yeah. I guess he lives in Santa Clarita now. He did move a couple of years ago. So, right. Yeah. That's just up the way. It's a nice little area. It is a nice area. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, premise of our podcast, fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each episode, I ask the all-important question. I'm going to start with Wayne. What T-shirt are you wearing? 
I am wearing one of many social distortion t-shirts that I have. I actually found this one in a box in the garage. It's the last one of the uh, three. Okay. Nice. Speaking of California. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How about you, Aaron? What t-shirt are you wearing? So I wanted to do something that was somewhat thematic. So I chose a shirt that's from the year of the album that we are reviewing today. But uh, other than that, it's not thematic at all. I'm wearing the, my Iron Maiden Strangers in a Strange Land tour shirt with uh, sort of a Clint Eastwood theme going on there. Love it. All right. Yeah. I, I had a uh, Power Slave jersey T-shirt very similar to the one you're wearing. Yeah. That was, I, that was, that was the album before that one, right? Right. Yeah. I had an amazing long sleeve uh, power slave shirt with maiden written down on the sleeves and I, I let a girlfriend's teddy bear wear it and I never saw it again. Yeah, that was oh, a bad, well. bad mistake. Yeah, I don't right. know. He looked, he looked good in it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm wearing probably a familiar face for, for you. <laughs> oh yes. So, uh, so I'm wearing Thank one you. of my, one of my Matt Nathanson t-shirts. Nice. Uh, and, and this was part of the live in Boston bundle. Right, bought uh, last year. So yeah, I haven't actually seen those shirts, so that's nice to see. No, all right. Well, on the back, on the back has all the names of the people who bought the bundle. Oh wow! And and you could you could say your name or the location or whatever. And I tried to put on mine records revisited podcast, and um, they changed it. I don't think they wanted to promote Uh, um, uh it. Orlando, Florida, on it. Yeah. All right. Well, I tried. I tried to. Yeah. Yeah. One, but it's, yeah. You, you have to. Uh, you got to pay a premium to get the banner on there. Obviously. Oh wait, you did yeah. pay a premium. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Well, I did pay yeah. the premium. I just. Yeah, I just I, realized I think that. You probably yeah. Looked at it. And they're like. They're like, yeah. yeah, we probably don't want to promote you then. Right. So, yeah. Well. Anyways, yeah. Even uh, though Matt's been on our podcast twice, but yeah. whatever. Yeah. I still love him. I still love Good. him. All right. Um, I've been humming "Sugar Is the Devil" all day. Oh, how nice! Um, so I, I I got familiar with Betty Goo. I wasn't familiar with uh, with your band. Was that? Yeah, was that very your few first people band? are. Not not <laughs> quite my first band. It was my first band that I fronted. Okay. Uh, so, but we, I had been in bands for about, uh, geez, almost ten years by that point. Is that you on the album cover with the eyeliner? Yeah, on the Gooicide cover, yeah. Okay. It's actually black lipstick because there wasn't enough oh. eye- eyeliner to, to go around. So, yeah. What year did that come out? That was 97. Okay. Yeah. All right, so so let's let's talk your history. Cause, um, sure. Ha- have you done many podcasts where you talk about... Uh, 
your your life and career in in music? Um, I want to say I've done none. Okay, but maybe We've got one. the exclusive here, Wayne. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so so you grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. Yeah. Where where exactly is Lexington? Lexington is about ten miles east of Boston. Okay. Birthplace of the American Revolution. All right. That's our big claim to fame. And so you're wearing a shirt from 86. I'm going to assume that you're around the same age as Wayne and I. Yes. And so what what was your what were the first bands that you gravitated towards? Cuz like when I when I hear Matt Nathanson music for instance, I don't hear Iron Maiden. Right. Like I, you know, Matt's not going to go full on Bruce Dickinson on us. No, no. Um, he, he would hurt his back, I think. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's very, very fit, mind you. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the uh, my, my history with music is is uh, typical, but also kind of unusual because my parents didn't listen to pop music, really. Um, so as a kid, I was mostly folk and classical around the house. Um I sang in choirs. I was very like just not rock and roll wasn't really on my radar at all. And then I I listened to Doctor Demento a lot, and um, and on the Funny Five one day they played this very funny song called Big Balls by a band called ACDC, and I thought, oh, they must be a funny band. I'm going to buy one of their records. So I bought two of their records. This was 1980, and. Uh, and I, one of them was back in black. And when I dropped the needle on that, it was like I might as well have just stepped into a new body and a new life because it was complete game changer to yeah. hear music like that. And I became pretty obsessed with uh, with hard rock, ACDC, Def Leppard, Juice Priest, Iron Maiden, Deep Purple, and that carried me through high school. And uh, <clears throat> and then, like most people, I went to college and and experienced a lot of different uh things in fact i went to college as far away as i possibly could to lexington i, I went to university of southern california okay uh straight out of high school and um only lasted a few semesters there but uh but started getting into alternative music and and playing in bands the first band i was actually in aside from my high school band was a filipino pop band that uh that was in town and needed a guitar player. So, you know, you just start doing things because you're in the world and, and everything kind of changes your perspective. And so I just became yeah. a voracious uh, consumer and our, you know, intaker of music. And, uh, and I've never really stopped. I just watched the uh, Netflix documentary about the college admission scandal. Oh yeah. And USC was one of those, uh, not surprising colleges. Did you get yeah. in the front door or did you back door? <laughs> I side, definitely got, or side door, I, side door. I guess was what. Uh, uh, yeah, um, that was part of the reason I didn't last very long there. I, I felt very out of place. I got in with uh, you know some grants and uh, okay. and managed to scrape through a couple semesters. But boy, there was a lot of money there, and it was not mine. And uh, it, it was very alienating. So I bounced and uh, dropped out of college for a few years after that. And played rock and roll so that suited me all right all right so did you did you go back to boston after dropping out of usc or tail between my legs yeah, yeah. i did um, and i moved into the city uh in 89 which will be relevant to our uh, to our topic um yeah and uh we'll get to that but yep 
So, so going from the classic rock stuff, the heavy metal stuff, to um, to Betty Goo type of type of uh, <laughs> type of music, and and the yep. the album that we're going to talk about. So, how did that morph into more of a, a punk centric, and then you kind of do another reverse with because I wouldn't call Matt Nathanson music. <laughs> Yeah, he's 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 a punk. Uh, He is, he is for sure. Yeah, Uh, but uh, but yeah, I don't um, I don't listen to much of the music that that Matt is sort of contemporaneous with. But we both listen to a lot of the music that inspires him, so that's why we mesh really well. Yeah. Um, But yeah, getting there, there's there's a couple key moments um, for me as a kid. So you know, I was going to arena rock shows growing up, seeing Iron Maiden, seeing all the all the biggies and that was my idea of what live music should be you know i wanted to be lost in a sea of people and banging my head and as an introvert it was great you know to just be an in, part of an invisible mass and a uh, little side note i went to see maiden at the forum a few years ago first time i'd seen him in 20 some odd years 30 years maybe and uh and there was kind of a nice little moment of like seeing a bunch of middle-aged people wearing the same shirt it was kind of like, oh yeah, this was a nice little tribe to be a part of for a little while, aside yeah. from its obvious flaws in the misogyny department and everything <laughs> else. But, um, but yeah, so it, in uh, after all that, um, somewhere along the line, I, I also I also always really liked the Stray Cats because guitar player. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so when I was out here in California in '88, I went to see them at uh, the John Anson Ford Theater, which is a really beautiful outdoor. Uh, just thin sort of amphitheater. And, uh, my friend and I went, we had the pair down to our asses and, uh, and I had no idea about rockabilly culture, uh, that it was even a thing, you know, except for in, you know, movies from the fifties. And we pull into the parking lot and everybody there is decked out. All the dudes are beautiful. All the women are beautiful. It's like, we, we couldn't have felt more like out of place, but it wasn't, there was no antagonism. It was just like, Oh wow, what a weird little place we've stepped into. And we went to the show and, and it was just one of the best shows I'd ever seen. And at a certain point, everybody was up on their seats dancing and we were like, people dance at shows. This is crazy. And so we sort of surreptitiously bent down and cuffed our jeans and stood up on our chairs and started dancing. And I was like, I think I like this a little better than banging my head. So that was my first gateway into, into something different. And then, uh, and then throughout the nineties, I was in a very, or the eighties into the nineties, I was in a a real kind of like art rock feedback band. And, uh, and during that period, we were up our own asses completely. Didn't listen to other people. Didn't play nice with other bands. We just wanted to do our thing. And if that meant 15 minutes of droning on D, we were going to do it, you know? And at a certain point I just started listening to a lot of the clash and, uh, wire and, um, and I realized that, that, that sort of songwriting spoke to me as a songwriter, or I guess, um, and then I just started writing like that. And I had a very memorable day at rehearsal where I said to the singer of the band who was the primary songwriter, I was like, I want to start doing these little short songs that just kind of like go zappity bap. And <laughs> I probably didn't say zappity bap, uh, <laughs> these short songs that just kind of get to the point and don't necessarily have a structure and don't mess around. And, uh, and he kind of smirked and said, what band are you going to do that with? And, uh, I said, huh, 
I see. <laughs> so I formed Betty Goop. And, uh, and I just started writing like mad. Uh, and that was that. Yeah. So uh, at what point do you go back to L.A.? Uh, so my wife, Paula, and I were making music together. She's a songwriter and, and yeah. arranger. And um, I was uh, in, I joined her band and then she started doing a solo thing. And I started, I toyed around with uh, running a record label with some friends and I started doing some producing and, and we thought, oh, let's move to LA and get into film and production and arranging. Uh, so we did that in 2004. Okay. Yeah. And then 2004 is right around the time of some mad hope. So how do you how do you get right. connected with Matt? So uh, so about a year of us sort of scrounging and trying, and and this was as you guys will be aware, and many people will be aware. You know, this is about five years after Napster started, and everything had been sort of changing under our feet, um, and and the things we had sort of footholds into, and, and little bits of success with got harder and harder uh with uh getting tv placements uh everybody was playing the same game and um we just kind of we floundered a little bit uh and i i took a step back and i was like well what am i actually really good at and i was like i think i'm actually my primary skill in music anyway at the time was was live performing and i thought i really i got to get back into that somehow because that's that's what I know how to do. And then coincidentally, Matt, who I'd already known for 10 years at this point, more than 10 years, he called me one day, uh, within a few days of me having that sort of realization. Um, he called me and said, Hey, I, I, I'm starting to work on a new record. I got out of my deal, uh, with universal and I want to make a record. And I wonder if you would help and, and, you know, maybe tour a little to support it. It'll probably be like a year. This was in 2005 that he asked right, me that. Right. And uh, I said, yeah, I think so. And I talked to Paula about it, and, and she sort of hesitantly agreed. Um, a year? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, well, it took us two years to make the record, and a further two years of touring on top of that before Come On, Get Higher really became a hit, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. And... Uh, and by that time, I felt like I was so invested that by the time it started actually getting good, I was like, well, I'm going to stay with this. Because um, four years of uh, touring in a van and trailer for a, a few hundred a week, <laughs> I'm happy to be uh, starting to reap the benefits of it. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's how that happened. And then we, we developed a really good – at first, it was hard because we were friends. So it's like he's the boss and uh, – if he's having a bad day, I want to help, but I'm also like tired too, and everything else. We had a we had a bit of time there to figure out how to how to work together, and then we each found our our roles. And we also both you know grew up during that time. Finally, you know, we got into our 30s, and it was like, okay, we got to stop being adolescents at last, <laughs> and uh, and we figured some stuff out. So yeah, and I I was talking to my wife about some mad hope the other the other night we were because I, I said hey you know i've got aaron coming coming on the show and and i'm like from from what he sent over on his bio info some mad hope was the first one that he worked with with matt on and has been working with him since and i'm like so that kind of makes sense because i kind of view some mad hope as like that was matt had two careers mm-hmm um, you know, there was 
pre some mad hope and then there's post some mad hope definitely the, the the pre is you know you're doing the singer songwriter thing which most guys just end up being in that realm and yeah. not, i won't call out any names but you know there there's a lot of those guys that that i listened to in the late 90s early 2000s when i hear their new music um they're they're still there yeah definitely if if, if that makes sense yeah and, and and i feel like with matt he has tried to you can tell that he wants to have radio hits as well but he's also yep. true to himself and is willing to explore a little more outside of the singer songwriter which he is i mean he's yeah. a singer songwriter but i don't know if that even makes any sense but no that's totally right and there's actually a there's a sort of a 10 year arc of of exploration where it, it, for me i was i was pretty vehemently not into uh, the genre. Um, but I liked Matt and I had followed him and I liked a bunch of his songs. Uh, so I wasn't just callously going into it, but, but he really was right. uh, on making some mad hope. He was pretty adamant that he didn't want to make that kind of a, a songwriter record. Cause part of the problem with the songwriter records is that once you get beyond the songwriter, depending on who he's working with, you end up with uh, a bunch of people just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and you get these kind of bland sounding records yeah. of a bunch of stuff happening and, and and beneath these fireworks uh suffered from that a bit um just from too many cooks you know and so he wanted to even though all those songs are you know sort of like among his best songs uh they they come off better live i think once he got his hands into them and really was able to figure out how he wanted to do them yeah like my 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 favorite matt song is i saw yeah and and it it has a different dynamic than listening to it on on cd as opposed to seeing it live yeah for sure for sure big big dynamic uh, yeah um but without rambling on too much um so when i got involved i was like i'm gonna help you kill the singer songwriter genre let's make a real good record that isn't that and he was kind of you know laughingly on board with that and we did that we tried that for a couple records and then um and then he was like oh this isn't quite the right uh thing and so last of the great pretenders happened which was much more of like a kind of like an artsy yeah. singer songwriter record and then um show me your fangs was a little bit more of a stretch to pop and then so around the time of uh sings his sad heart he was like i gotta figure out a different way to do the singer songwriter thing because that's really what i am i can't lie about that um so he's been sort of dialing back and, and digging back into the actual songwriting thing and not worrying so much about the pop production and his next record, which is a shame. It was, it was pretty much ready to come out right around the time the pandemic hit. It's, it's going to be stellar and he'll probably have two ready to go by the time we're actually back out again. So yeah. Sings a sad heart is my favorite, Matt. Oh, good. That's my yeah. favorite album. He did a, he did a great job with that. Fantastic. Job. Yeah. Um, all right. Before we uh, go into the record that you chose, I've got some, yes. I've got some questions. Okay. From the Matt Nathanson fans Facebook page, so I oh. threw out I threw out there that um, I got Aaron coming on. Any questions for him? And and um, so I've got a few. Okay, you cool with that? I am cool with that. If I'm not, I won't answer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Andrea Stanley asked, um, "What magic does Aaron have that has him aging freaking backwards?" <laughs> uh, soft filters. Soft filters. Yeah. I don't know what that means. 
uh, you know, like Barbara Stanwyck in the 1950s movie, everything just gets all blurry. Oh, and okay. Soft. In other words, I'm I'm just like Barbara Stanwyck is my answer. <laughs> she was beautiful forever too. Excellent. All right, uh, Kimberly yeah. Proctor says, "What is your favorite song to perform with with Matt?" Oh, that's an interesting question. As as a band, I think she said with the band, with the band. Right. Um, that's funny because sometimes when we when I talk about the band thing with people or just performing, it's like there's a certain thing and now having some perspective of not having done it for over a year, it's like there's a thing where you just kind of you're not exactly on autopilot, but you you don't necessarily think about the song when you're playing, unless you're the front man. <laughs> you know, I've I've got a lot of things I'm doing on stage, looking at the other guys, thinking about what's next. And uh so a lot of times I'm kinda out to lunch. So um that's not that's a terrible way to put it. A lot of times I'm just sort of in, I'm in a weird little zone where I'm thinking about music and I'm playing music, but it's not necessarily yeah. the song that I'm engaged with. But if I had to think of one that always kind of got me excited, um, I'm terrible at favorites, by the way, which we'll learn later as we get to our listing. Um, I, do, I, I get in arguments with people all the time because I just say I don't do favorites. Like there's too many, there's too many qualifications. Uh, but I'll just do it for the sake of answering the question. Detroit Waves. Okay, that's a good. One. Yeah. Richard Spring. I don't know if I even want to do Richard's <laughs> question. Um, he says, "What's the worst thing about working with Matt?" I don't want to get you in trouble with that one. Uh, no, I mean, there's no worst. That's yeah, that's a strange question. That would be more like, "What's the worst thing about being a side man?" Or you know, there's all kinds of ways you could answer that. But it's like, I'm very lucky, and I I don't have I don't have that kind of outlook on on what I'm doing. I get frustrated with certain things at any of any part of my life, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to answer that because it doesn't really have an answer. Right. All right. Uh, uh, in that sense. Yeah. Jennifer Annie. I don't know if I said her last name, right. Uh, what's your, what, what song aren't you fond of that people always ask you guys to play? Huh? Um, and Matt already said we we talked about on one of the episodes we did we talked about wedding dress. Uh huh. Yeah, that's that's huh. that's one he won't um, won't play. Oh, we'll we'll get back to that one. I'm sure he at least likes. <laughs> I know he at least likes that song. It's, it's playing a, it. It's it's one of my favorite songs, and I understand why he probably doesn't want to play it because it's pretty it's damn little, personal. But yeah. So. Um. 
I haven't had one lately. I had more back in the back in the early days for sure. I had songs that I was like, really, do I have to play sad songs again? Um, these days, the set list has always been uh, pretty good for me, especially once, once uh, "Sings a Sad Heart" came out. Back in the, I would say, if just 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 to give an answer, I would say back in the back in the day, uh, I didn't ever like playing "Heartbreak World." Really, and, uh, and now we don't ever play it, so <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm trying to think. So I've seen Matt three times um, with band stuff or with you. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard "Heartbreak World." Yeah, I don't think we've ever played it since the Some Mad Hope tours. Okay, and part of the reason was because I I played it on piano, and I'm uh, at the time, especially, I was not particularly adroit on piano, so it just felt like a slog. Okay. Do people request Heartbreak World? Not so much anymore. Uh, we've rehearsed it for a couple tours. Like Matt's been like, that song's kind of good. Let's try it again. And we get into it. And it's like, by the time we're two verses in, we're like, eh. But someday, <laughs> someday we'll do it again. We did learn it for the for the Live in Paradise tour because uh, we learned everything for that. Um, gotcha. But it never made an appearance. All right. Uh, next question, Jennifer Morris. I'd like to know more about Invisible 3B. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, I really like that song and wanted to know how it came about. What is what's Invisible 3B? Well, here's the thing. I have a record with my band Frank Shirts called Invisible, and okay. it has it has three songs called Invisible on it. I don't know which one that is, <laughs> so I have to look. So, pardon me for one second here. Uh, she's going. She's she's digging deep. Then I know. I love this. Uh, go, Jennifer. So there's Invisible 1A, which is uh, an actual song, like uh, the first song that I wrote for the record, which is why the record's called that. And then 1B, I think, is the instrumental. So okay. where's the record? Uh, 1C. Wait, what did she say? Which one did she say? Three, 3B. 3B. All right. All right. I have to listen to a second of it. Ah. Right. So that's a, that's the instrumental. Um that one uh, was sort of the first song that I wrote that became a way of, of, of doing songs, instrumentals in particular, where I would just okay. sit with my guitar and maybe choose a couple pedals and start noodling and, uh, and come up with something that I liked and then build off of that. Um, and I really, I've always liked that one. I'm glad she brought it up because um, it's only, it's kind of only two chords. It's a little bit ambient, a little bit droney. So for even when I was writing it, I knew that that middle, there was a middle section that's kind of down, not a lot happening. And I knew I wanted something to happen there. So I got Paula to read an excerpt from, uh, Virginia Woolf's to the lighthouse, uh, okay. in which she talks about sort of the invisibility of women in society. And, uh, and it's, it's comes off pretty powerful. I wish I had written it, that part of it, but, uh, Hey, you know, and hey, I, so, is this available on Spotify? It is. Uh, yeah. Under under what? Frank Shirts, which is my was my current band, but lately I've been writing more stuff that sounds like Betty Goo, so I got back to Betty Goo. <laughs> okay. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> That was what now she often felt the need of. 
even to think, to be silent, to be alone. All the being and the doing. Expansive, glittering, vocal, evaporated. And one shrunk with a sense of serenity, to being oneself. A wedge-shaped core of darkness, something invisible to others. And this self, having shed its attachments, was free for the strangest adventures. All right, last question. This is yep. from Don Weiler McCluskey. Okay. Uh, she wants to know when did you start re- playing guitar? Of course. Has Has he ever tried and almost gotten Matt to try matching hair colors or cuts? <laughs> um, well, it would be impossible for us to do matching cuts because Matt has this beautiful thick mane of hair, and I've got wispy thinning hair. Um, and I sometimes I joke with him. I'm like, one of these nights when you're asleep, I'm going to scalp you and and <laughs> and put this on the front of my head so I can have this beautiful thing you've got. Because, um, uh, but he he uh, there was a brief period where he sort of toyed with the color idea, but it's uh, I don't think it's really his thing. So when did you start playing guitar? And that was oh uh, yeah. Question. So uh, yeah, that that was the question. So I. I got uh, yeah I got the ACDC record when I was 11, and then my dad had an old nylon string in the attic, you know, with action like an inch off the fretboard that I I banged around with uh, until I got an electric guitar at 12, and then it was all over. So look at that coming up this year. This year it'll be 40 years of playing guitar. So what were what were some of the first songs that you played on guitar? The, the ones that you were trying to learn while you were junior high or high school. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of everything off of the first ACDC record, high voltage. I have a, okay. I have a personal mythology that at this point, who knows if it's true, but I told myself it was true that the first guitar solo I taught myself note for note was from rock and roll singer off the first, uh, ACDC record. Um, okay. and so, yeah, a lot, a lot of that. Excellent. I just found um, Highway to Hell at a garage sale. Oh, nice. Ooh, very good. It's hard hard to find ACDC for a dollar these days. Exactly. I had it on cassette back in the day. I loved... So, I'll throw this out. Please. You a Bon Bon Scott guy or a Brian Johnson fan? (laughs) I I do like them both, but I'm I'm definitely more of a Bon guy. Even back in the the day, I was... Yeah, Power Age is where it's at. Um but I will put in a, a strong vote for uh, Flick of the Switch. The third record with Brian is one of my favorite ACDC records. I do like that one. I went back to it. I didn't like it when I bought it back in the day. And um, I, I like it now. Yeah. It's just, it's, they, the, Malcolm was afraid at the time that they'd gone too far with, uh, with Mutt Lang. And so they made this kind of like really basic rock record. And I think it really works. Yeah. Wayne, how about you? Bon or Brian? Oh, I'm a Bon Scott guy. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, High Voltage is one of those records that I listen to at least once a year. I feel oh, like yeah. I just, I, got I have it. I have four different copies of it. <laughs> yeah. The British, the Australian, the alternate cover. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm a nut. Um, and a quick uh, other thing about that, those first basically four, right up to Power Age, one of the things I love about those records is – they're not like the guitars aren't distorted. They're just loud. Yeah. 
uh, you know, they're overdriven, but they're not like, guy, 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 guy. They're just really thick and, and strong sounding. Um, and I just love the sound of that. They were just a great bar band, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to replace. So I had all, I had all of the cassettes up through fly on the wall. So I had mm-hmm. all of all of them back in the day on cassette. So I'm slowly trying to get either CD or find a, find them on vinyl, and I can't find ACDC on vinyl. Same it's up. tough. Yeah, they they go. You know, you can find new pressings, but yeah, no, no, I don't. I want the old ones. Yeah, and one of one of my biggest regrets. So I I sold nearly all of my vinyl to pay for the move to come mm. out from utah to florida back in 2001 yeah to pay for and reduce the cost of <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and one of the things that i sold was a promotional copy of jailbreak Ooh. and i'm still kicking myself that i sold that because yeah. uh wayne i i i uh i got that when i won a contest from kisw when I got to be on the oh, wow. show, nice, and, uh, and they gave me that, and they gave me a promotional copy of Queen's Reich's first record, Ooh. and I'm trying to think what else they gave me a stack of of stuff. You got all the uh, all the EPs. I did. I did. <laughs> nice. I yeah. I was talk, talking about regret. I recently found a a list that I had printed out when I was a kid of all my records from the eighties dot matrix printer. Fantastic. Um, and, uh, and I did actually keep all my ACDC records except fly on the wall. For some reason, I recently had to pay through the nose to replace that. Um, but I have, yeah, I had 25 odd, uh, or 15 odd iron maiden singles and LPs that I got rid of. And those are all, those are all, I mean, I'm never going to replace them because I don't want to spend $40 for a B side, um, and a handful of other things, but luckily I kept, I kept some gems, but yeah, it was all about moving. I mean, I was moving apartments every two years and then of course, vinyl became worthless in the nineties, which I wish I had thought a little further ahead, but me too. Yeah, me too. Just the. Every time I look at the Smith CDs that I have in my collection, I had all of those on vinyl. Yeah. And I sold them all. And yep. Wayne, Wayne's just looking at me like, you're an idiot. But, I can see the disdain through the pixels. I remember him, I remember him watching him open the box when they would they would show up. I can't yeah. believe he ever did that. Mm. Yeah. Well, oh, well. Had to pay for the moving truck somehow. So that's right. Yeah. Well, when I sold mine, they were they were worth pennies. So I feel even stupider for for that. I got you know I would get like two Smashing Pumpkins CDs that I would later throw away for for ninety records. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> oh, all right. Oh well. We ready to dive into the record that you chose for this episode? Yeah, let's do it. So so Aaron, tell us what record you chose to revisit for. For, for this. I chose the Throwing Muses self-titled debut record from 1986. Was there any others that you thought about, or was this like, nope, this is the one I want to talk about? This was not the first one I thought of. The first one I thought of was Susie and the Banshee's Juju. Okay. Um, but that's more, that's more important to me later in life, so this one was more a little bit uh, at the time, so that felt like a better choice, and then... Uh, 
there's so many records that I love that it was very difficult. So I just decided to throw you the first couple that came to my mind and stop thinking about her. I would have gone crazy. <laughs> so uh, what what was it about this record that uh, just was inspirational to you? Mo- I, yeah. I mean, what 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 was it about this record? So my, I'll, I'll give you a slightly long-winded reply. Um, Please. Ba- bouncing off of what we talked about before, having seen the Stray Cats in 88 and kind of my, my worldview of music changing, um, uh, when I moved back to Boston, I started uh, living in town. And so you'd go to – or playing in clubs. And so you would inherently see bands in clubs. And, and, mm-hmm. and you started th- I started thinking of music differently. But also – uh, you know, less in terms of like who can fill an arena and more in terms of like what actually is good and moves me. Um, but also at the same time, there was a really great, uh, and by, by the way, this is, I'm talking about 1989. I was a little late to this record. Um, okay. And, uh, and there was, there was just this great period of, of women making records in this kind of alternative, uh, uh, bucket of music that was happening at the time, which is a meaningless term because on one hand you have, you know, nine inch nails is alternative. And on the other hand you have, you know, throwing muses is alternative. So it's like, whatever. But like, so I got super into, um, this band called voice of the beehive in, in 88, 89, great record, much more pop, but, but really good lyrics. And, and then Sinead O'Connor and, um, band called mary's danish and just a bunch of these 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 women fronted bands and mostly it was the music was great but it was a, it was this uh, connecting to this idea of, of women were writing lyrics that that were just so different than than what i'd grown up with what i'd grown up with in heavy metal and hard rock obviously was idiocy at the <laughs> at a real basic <laughs> level bon scott was very funny about it and uh and so he has a certain kind of charm and swagger that really stands up to the test of time but it's like i go back and i mean this concert shirt i'm wearing i can't listen to most of this record it's and it's not even sexist it's just stupid it's like them reading a dictionary page about alexander the great it's terrible which well, is to say they has rhyme of the ancient mariner yeah which is, which is the same concept sli- yeah but it's slightly more artfully done i'm not i actually think there are some great iron maiden records this just happens to not be one of them um <laughs> So this period, I, I just started think I started op- widening my my gaze a lot and just being like, oh wow, look at all these. And then you'd go to clubs and 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 that was the great thing about being in a band, especially in the in the late '80s, was that it was there was very much a sense of of level playing field all around. Uh, the, the on on one level, it was just you know it was it was co-ed to a degree back then that was. Uh, it was just taken for granted, especially in a college town like Boston. I think there was just, you know, like Boston, Seattle, all these places that just had bands. It wasn't a novelty that there were, were women fronting bands. Um, yeah. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't gendered in the sense that like, ooh, la, la. It was just in the sense of like, oh, yeah, of course they're in a band. Like, they're great. So no big deal. Uh, it was a kind of an offshoot of, of what post-punk got us, which was great. Like in, in Britain in the early 80s. It was just like, yeah, of course these women are who have pants. End of story, you know. Right, right. So, but for me, it was the lyrics, really, just like having my mind opened in a way of like, oh, okay, we can talk about all kinds of things in songs, and not just you know dragons and uh, parties and um, and so that at that time, um, the fourth Throwing Muses record, uh, the real Ramona came out, and that for me 
was just like it still is one of the best records i've ever heard um but it is it, it, because it's their fourth record and they're on sire and sire wants radio songs it's more polished kind of a thing but um for me it always that record brings me back to just living on commonwealth avenue in boston and riding the train walkman over my ears playing that over and over again and then i had a friend christine mccarthy who is really into throwing muses and she was like oh you're an idiot if you haven't listened to their first record <laughs> like that's really where it's at um so i was like okay i'm on on it and um and i i picked that up and it was like okay i get it this was uh it was like a a hyped up American folk at its heart, but weird uh, version of everything I liked about wire where it was like, the song is only in service to the lyric. There's no, you don't have to have a chorus at any particular time. Maybe you don't have a chorus at all. Um, and, uh, and it's dark and sad and hopeful and weird. And, uh, yeah, so it just that's the one that uh, that for me uh, really kind of opened my eyes again, um, and that's why I picked it. Gotcha. Yeah, um, Wayne, how familiar w- were you with Throwing Muses? Uh, you know, it's one of those names that you'll hear. I listened to a lot of alternative music in the '90s, and so it's a name I heard. But I also, and I do remember, uh, was it Big Yellow Gun? Right, yellow gun, yeah. Yeah. And so that I had I'd kind of passing and heard in passing. This I I agree with this blew my mind. This was like this is Yeah. We'll get into it as it goes, but I mean this yeah. is I mean the word that the word that kept coming because I was trying to figure out how to describe her lyrics and graphic is the only is the best yeah. word I think I can I can use to, yeah. to to explain it they're just poetic but even more so than that graphic like yeah the I- image is just like you know visceral out. yeah visceral to the, to the nth degree i'm looking forward to hearing both of you guys analyze some of these uh, lyrics yeah because um, there's a few that i'm like wayne <laughs> analyze this and i tried I try it on every one, and sometimes you know, and I, I, I'll probably, you know, there might be some blowback. I may, I, yeah. I don't, I can say it's, it's very, it's, there's I'll so pull. much there. It's, it's, it's incredible, and and musically, yeah. it's like I tried to at one point just tried to focus on the the lyrics a little bit because musically there's uh, so much going on. Almost every song feels like two songs and, yep. and it would be hard. That's what made it so hard to score was because one part of the song, maybe musically I didn't like as much, mm-hmm. but then the second part was so great. I, I didn't, it was like, I couldn't, it, I almost just, at one point I was just yeah. going to go in descending order or ascending order. Cause it was so <laughs> right. hard to really figure out how to do it. Cause they're, they're just, they're so, they're so dynamic. Like they, yeah. they have two contrasting, very contrasting parts to almost all of them. Yeah. When I first listened through, I, I, I gave a song a one as it began. And by the end of it, I was crying and I was like, well, that's not a one. <laughs> like, yeah. I gave yeah, one, a, yeah. I had, a, I had a, one of the songs at a, a tour. And I, when I was writing my notes, I, I just, I, I can't do it. I, 
had to revise my scores and move it up and yeah. drop everything down. And then I'm kind of writing my notes on the score on the song that I gave a one. And I'm like, I just, I don't even know what to say. I, yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I mean, it's just, it was very, very difficult. My notes coming up on a couple of the songs were, um, this was one of the hardest records that I've ever tried Absolutely. to figure out what the sound clips were going to be. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like a 40 second sound clip is going to do anyone justice because they're, you know, I, I may introduce it with a 40 second clip. Somebody goes and listens to it and, and they listen to the entire thing and probably going to go that I don't. Was that this song? <laughs> I don't recognize that from that sound clip. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then so and then difficult from that standpoint. Yeah. The I also went back and listened to the demos for this to try and get a little perspective on it. And that didn't help much uh, because they, <laughs> they, they knew what they were doing at that point. They'd been a band for four years, I think when they made this record. Yeah. Um, and, and then you factor in the fact that it's a pregnant teenage girl who's singing all these songs and it's like, like right. wild. Yeah. And this was one of those bands. Did, did they have, so Wayne and I both grew up in in Tacoma, Seattle area, mm-hmm. and so the only introductions that I had with throwing muses were on those Warner Brother compilations that they just say had. yes, the, the yeah. just say yes. So the yep. just say yes, and then uh, the 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 song "Not Too Soon" was on the just say anything mm-hmm. compilation, and I bought that because. Uh, I had heard the Judy Bats, and I liked the, right. the I Judy Bats. It. Yes, so I bought so I bought it for that. Um, Seals Crazy is on that on that record mm-hmm. as well. I still have it, and I and I just recently found the Just Say Yes uh, at at a garage sale for. Oh wow! I think I paid fifty cents for it, but that yeah. was really good too because it's good. yeah. Does that one have a feeling on it? Um. Yes. By throwing music? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a yes. great song. That's the one that has a feeling because the rest of it yeah. is like Figures on a Beach is on that. There's a yep. Wild Swans. Wayne, there's a Replacements tune um, on that on that record. Lips Like yeah. Sugar from Echo. It's a right. really good, really good compilation. Yeah. Fun little uh, Boston Rock side note for you. My first band's last show after we had just changed our name for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> was opening was opening for figures on the beach at Venus de Milo okay. in Boston. Because they're a Boston band, right? I think they must have been. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So. Person personnel for this record. So, Kristen Hirsch is primary songwriter, guitar, vocals, and the credit said synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of synthesizer on this? No, there's a little piano and there's some noises. Uh, I was listening today and I was like, is that feedback or amp hum? Maybe that was the synthesizer. (laughs) Um, Tanya Donnelly, her stepsister, is on guitars and also does provide vocals. Does she have a lead on one of these songs? Yeah. Yeah. She wrote and wrote and sang green. 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 That's right. That's right. Okay. And then Leslie Langston is on bass. Yeah. Yeah, she's good. She's really yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David Nar- Narciso. Did I say Narci- that right? Nar- Narciso. Nar- Narciso. So he's on drums. And one yeah. of the things in my research that I thought was interesting was 
he didn't know how to play a kit. So yeah, his so so his foray into drums was he was in a marching band. Yeah. Yep. Which is very obvious on many of these songs. It's mm-hmm. it's very obvious on a couple songs. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But the kit that they got didn't have any like hi-hat and cymbals to yep. it. And so when you listen to this record, like the first time I listened to it, this was before I looked at the research. Mm-hmm. I'm like the drums are pretty straightforward. Like there's n- not much going on there outside of just keeping a beat and now understanding that it doesn't have any of the I thought it was even it's, it's, to me it's the symbols I never really I listening to that I thought I the drums stood out and then when I read that they even stood out even more yeah. um, there are two okay. songs with symbols and I don't know if somebody else is doing it yeah. but I think what's funny is symbols are like the climax of of a of a of a fill and when you take those out it really creates this tension that never yeah. Like it, it builds and builds and builds, or keeps going around, but you, you never get the, the. There's no climax. It's just yeah. It, I actually it had creates I, this tension. Yeah, in my first set of notes, I, I wrote down where every where every time there actually was a symbol, and there's there's only hi hat, and there's a symbol I think on yeah. one song. Um, but I do believe I think that you know maybe a little bit of myth making going on because there's hi hat on the demos <laughs> of these too. So it's like I, you okay. know I think he probably had a hi hat, but he he never played overheads. And when they were first coming together, he just g- gathered junk around the neighborhood and brought it to his attic, and that was what his drum kit was. So, and I would I would uh, push back a bit on the idea that they're simple because they're anything but. Like he is. Oh. I- uh, he and Leslie, uh, I, I, I have a whole new, well, I've always had an appreciation for Dave because he's been there forever, but, but I have a, and after listening to this record, you know, a dozen times or whatever and really paying attention, I'm like, oh my goodness, those guys, like, for, especially for these kinds of songs, like, where would these songs be? Well, we'll get to that when we do the things, yeah. but, um, but yeah, it's really, uh, it's quite a, it's quite a group effort, this record, even though Kristen is quite clearly the, the primary songwriter. Yeah couple other things on this. So this was released by the UK label 4AD. Yep. In fact, Throwing Muses was the very first American band on 4AD because it was primarily UK artists. Yep. Um, I, I remember them from being, it was uh, Tones on Tails. I remember seeing that on, on one of those Tones on Tails CDs that I bought back in the day. Um Bauhaus, of course. I mean, yep. I guess prior to Tones on Tales. Yeah. Um, trying to trying to remember who else was on that label. I probably Pixies, uh, Cocteau Twins. Pixies. Yeah. Uh, Dead Can Dance. Um, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some weird ones too, like they did that uh, "Pump Up the Volume" song was on 4AD. You know, oh, pump yeah, up the, the volume, pump yeah, up the volume. Yeah, Mars. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And a, a little side note from Kristen about this is that they all lived in a house together when they were in Boston. Thorey Muses did, and and she, they, the the roommates would keep writing on the wall IVO next to the phone, and she's like, "What is this IVO thing?" And it turns out it was 480s 
Ivo Watts, who was calling them <laughs> to say he'd heard their demo. And, and he finally reached Kristen and he's like, I really love your demo. And he's a, he's an unusual character. He just, and she is. So the two of them on the phone must have been something else. But, uh, he said, I loved your demo, but I don't sign American bands. And she's like, okay. And I was like, all right, well, let, let me know if there's anything I can do. She's like, okay. And then hang up. And then the next right. day he calls again. Really, I can't get my head out of these songs. I love them, but too bad we don't sign American bands. She's like, yeah, that's a shame. Gee, too bad. You know, <laughs> conversation over. And then one day a contract just shows up in the mail. So, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, production on this, Gil Norton. Have you looked yeah. at his, his production credits? A little bit, yep. Holy moly. Yeah, um, he's a heavy hitter. We Wayne, we've talked about at least one of his records. So we talked about Ocean Rain from mm -hmm. Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, he also did some work with the Trifids, which is one of my favorite unknown bands here in the U.S., but had a little bit of a cult following down in Australia. I, lo mm -hmm. I love them. I love them. Never checked them out. He worked on some stuff with Delamitri. Um, I'm trying really hard, Wayne, to get Justin from Delamitri to come on. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. He's one that I really want on the on the podcast. Worked with James. Worked with yep. uh, with Belly on a on a number of tracks, which of mm -hmm. course is makes sense. Which is Tanya's uh, Tanya's band. Uh, one thing that I did read or. Um, heard was uh that Kristen knew that tanya wanted to write a hit yeah and she felt like she was holding her back and so um she essentially let um let uh let tanya move on yeah well it was time and it works because Feed the Trees was a number one alternative song back in, what was that, 92, 93? Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. Um, what else? Anything else, bio info, before we jump into this? Uh, I think we've covered it all. Okay. All right, let's do this. So as a reminder. Oh, wait, I, I have one okay. little anecdote. They recorded it at the big studio in Vermont. Uh, that was like the premier studio and uh by their by their counting they they weren't quite done because Kristen had a little bit of a problem getting the vocals right once she was pregnant apparently she had a hard time with getting getting the demon to come out um and uh so she she left in the middle of recording without telling everybody and for a couple talking days about the kid you're not talking about right. the kid coming in. Yeah, he, he, he went, right, exactly. No, the, the demon vocal. And uh, and so they lost okay. a couple of days. And when they came back, when she came back to the studio, they were almost done. And the guy said, we're being kicked out because Deep Purple is coming in and they have more money than we do. So they're, uh, they're kicking us out of the studio. So <laughs> I don't know where they finished it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And that was the Perfect Strangers album. Oh, was it? Okay. No, no, it was House of the Blue Light. Oh, wow. Sorry, wrong year, wrong year. Yep. Oh, wow. okay. So not at all worth it. A terrible record, and, and they kicked these guys out. Yeah, so. I, was say. That, I don't. Re I don't even remember that one. Nobody does. As a reminder, our scoring is based on number of songs on this record. Wayne, how many songs on this record? Ten. I did that for you, Wayne. Do you uh, see the glee on his face with that? Yeah. It's not, it's I think to go more than 10 on 
with these kind of songs would have emotionally uh, wore someone out. Yeah. Yeah. By the by the t- by the time the tenth song comes in and it's even a lot different sounding, and you're like, oh, thank God, I just yeah. you know what? I, I need want, a break. There were, there were like Zay. I even mentioned it a couple of times in the notes where she. They make me. It makes me physically ill. Like she, her words are able to get a physical reaction. Yeah, um, they're so graphic. Yeah. Yep. All right. So top songs are going to get ten points. Favorite next favorite nine points down to lowest score of one. So let's kick this off with the Blondie remake. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is this is called. I like when there are quotations of people talking within lyrics and this, yeah. this use, uses that. Um, I also like when it's not always obvious where the title of the song comes from mm-hmm. until you really listen to the song. And I think that that happens a couple times on this record. Um, like, for instance, for this one, the phrase of call me doesn't even come into well into what, like minute two of this. Yeah. Were they influenced by R.E.M.? Because this has very early REM feel to me. Yeah, I don't. Uh, Kristen, I think, is pretty good at her brand of myth making, um, and so she doesn't talk much about what okay. music she listened to. But she was writing these songs in '84, so I don't know that she would have heard REM at the time. She grew up, but uh, still a reasonable uh, through line because she grew up. Her father was like kind of a hippie, and I think she grew up listening to like a lot of Appalachian folk and okay. that kind of stuff. Which I mean, it's just sort of they, they're dipping from the same original well. I think yeah. it's part of yeah. what it is. Yeah. All right, Wayne. I told you I'd let you loose on the lyrics. So <laughs> wow. here we go. So and I, I will hear admit, it. I will admit that when he mentioned her being pregnant, I didn't see that anywhere. And once he said it, it it really made a couple of songs even make more sense. Um, and I think in this one possibly, but this one feels like a, a breakup song, but mm-hmm. there's, I have notes everywhere. So it's going to be difficult to try to keep track of all of it. But I love like from the beginning that, that line where she says, I may kill. And it's not you kill, he kills. It's just like relationships suck. like kill you. Yeah. And then <laughs> it goes. Um, and then you just see that there was a couple of lines that made me feel like he was older. Cause he, you know, he lives for the green and he's working. But, and then the summer's over kind of makes it seem like it's about school, or at least one of them is in school. Uh, but then there's these li- these lines in here that just make life, what, you know, whereas uh, there's a shape on the horizon as we're picked off one by one. Something's gone, something's over. Like the end of yeah. this relationship, and she's she's contemplating the futility of life based on, on this relationship. That's how much it meant to her. Yeah. And it, it sends her into a depression where she's, and then it says, I'm in a deep hole. I've dug myself five feet deep. So it's not a, it's a depression, but she also realizes that, that she's perpetuating it to some degree by herself. Mm-hmm. 
it's probably exactly as deep as she is tall, which I think is a very, it's a quite an image, you know, like there she is, just can't quite see out, you know? And then the, uh, I guess the, the quotation part you talked about is, I like it. Uh, first of all, thanks for letting me hold you is the oldest trick in the book. Uh, yeah. and then the whole, um, calling me moonshine. And then that's you let, you let him call you that. Like she's talking to herself and that's your name. It has this real loss of identity in it. Like I'm now who he tells me I am kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, she's chanting, call me just like that. I can just, you know, like every, like so many teenage girls call me. She yeah. still loves him. It's just, like I say, you feel like you've been through the ringer listening to this this one song. And it's the first song. Right. Yeah, I noticed, I thought of this when you you mentioned the, the change-ups. Uh, and I, I listened to this one, I think, more than any other one because I kept starting it over uh, because I wanted to sort of pay attention to how it went. And it really is like, it's like a prog rock song in a certain way. It's just got these, it's like a little suite, S-U-I-T-E, of, of moments. And it comes out punching hard with that eighth note thing going on you think like wow what a great rock song and then it goes into that six eight feel uh which is another theme of this record there's there's sixes and triplets like on eight out of ten of these songs i think um and and by the time you get to the end as you were saying wayne yeah your your heart is breaking here i am what a loser waiting for years to go by it's like whoo yeah um, should we just get scores? Do we have any other? <laughs> yeah, let, let me read this one quote from from Kristen. Yeah, this will this will this is, I tied this to this song just because it it really exemplifies that music is beautiful math. It's owning violence. Music is how we respect hurt and happiness. Nice. Yeah. I kind of want to just end it right there. (laughs) Sorry, I should have written that at the end. Okay, good night. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. All right. Um, Wayne, what was your score on this one? I think a lot of what he just said is the – I gave this my top score. And I think because it's the first song I'd heard that I really – I mean, besides, like I'd said, hearing things in passing, seeing videos on MTV, this one – I'm concentrating on and so and obviously it's the beginning and so a lot of times I'd start listening to it and I'd get I wouldn't finish and I'd go do something else and I'd come back and I'd start over again so I I got a familiarity with it in it and I think being such a almost like a gateway it's now the first song that I heard and I I have a fondness for it yeah yeah Yeah, this was this was my eight and and part of it was going back to the the just say compilations you know mm-hmm. knowing that not too soon was like my first foray into into throwing muses and that's a tanya song and it's more of a poppy song and then yeah. you hear this and and i'm like oh that's this is not too soon not at all so uh aaron what's your score on this one i had a nine for this one and i'll I'll, uh, it could have easily been my 10 uh, as could have two others so yeah yeah all right um next song is green
bit of a 180. What do you got on this one, Aaron? So this is Tanya's offering. Uh, and when I was, uh, uh, when I was getting into the band, a lot of the people I knew who also liked them, this was their favorite Thorny Musa song at the time. Uh, and it got a lot of airplay in Boston. Um, oh. for me, it's, it's a tough one because it's a, it is a very good song. It's probably the best thing Tanya did until, uh, Honey Chain on the real Ramona, which was the last okay. song she would have written for the band. Um, but it's just a little like the verse is great. And then the, the chorus is not so great. Um, so it's not, it's never been quite a favorite of mine because it, it starts off in this mood and then it goes somewhere else that I'm not super into. Um, and it just pales compared to the other ones lyrically, I think. Um, so there's a couple good moments, but a lot of, some of it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, compared to what Kristen's writing about, which is so visceral and everything, you get temper and tempest to knock at the moon and the stars come out at night. It's a little bit like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I do like the verses a lot. And the counter melody at the end uh, on that last, you, you built a city in my head and you can see my, like there's a lot of really nice moments in it. Yeah. Um, and I, I get, I got a very marching bands feel for the, for the drum. Yes. Yep. Wayne, what do you got on this one? Yeah, I, just like you said, I you this song starts and you immediately know that the same person that wrote "Call Me" did not write this song. I mean, <laughs> right, I, right, yeah, right away. And I, and I think I like this yeah. um, musically. I think maybe it has a more conventional feel, um, but yeah, and lyrically, the green is eyes, her inexperience. It it it, it works. I mean, I liked it. Yep. Um, I did like this is the first time I noticed, really noticed the bass. And then I thought he did some cool things. There's a, there's a it sounds like he's drumming on a table, which, uh, really, mm -hmm. you know, and this has a little bit of hi hat in this one. Yes. Yes, it does. I have a note yeah. on that too. Yep. Scores. Wayne, what do you got? I gave it a five. I, once again, I mean, I could see it being lower because lyrically it isn't, it, it, it's definitely not like anything else, but I, I liked it for the way it sounded i think it kind of i as as i'm going to get broken away from what i know about music in the in later on in this record this was that last tie to something more conventional okay. <laughs> right yeah. aaron your score that's my two okay this is my seven all right i dug the song maybe maybe because i'm more in the pop sensibilities <laughs> No, it's, I mean, it's a good song. It's again, yeah. like my top, my bottom five are, could have been anything, yeah. uh, any order almost. All right. Next song is hate my way. Oh yeah. with love my way by the site definitely not <laughs> yeah uh, i think uh, the the first thing that strikes me about this song is it's called hate my way and and because of how you 
how the English language works, you think it's, it's, it's empowering. Like this is hate my way, but it's like, nope, I hate my way. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. I, so my, my notes here are, this is one part Martha Davis and one part Patty Smith. <laughs> and this is this was one that was tough to do a sound clip for this one because yeah, uh, forty seconds does not capture the the full essence of this song and the mm-hmm. and this is proggy to me. Yeah, yeah, I got a Kate Bush in the kind of the second part. Um, I think yeah. something musically about it uh, and her voice, the lead bass, yeah, perhaps. Had a, had a, yeah, might, but it's like I say, the first the first part is almost like. Uh, like this slam poetry thing where there's a little bit of, you know, ambient noise behind her, this this really powerful poetry. That was that the where Patty she, Smith to yeah, me. Where she's, yeah, where she's bringing all of these, like, easy excuses. Like, if, if I only, you know, was a smack freak, I, I could hate society or um, a Holocaust uh, survivor, I could hate Hitler, make all these easy choices that kind of go with this one thing. And then at the end, it's it's none of those it's it's i hate my way i hate my i mean uh, this self-loathing that comes into it and then yeah that kate bush thing starts and then she's i now she's poetic in a whole different way where she's kind of putting some of this on uh boys and religion um and then uh like uh, more conventional like gender roles the lines about the kitchen and I do like how she said, I have a gun in my head. And then later in the, towards the end, Mr. Huberty has a gun in his head, kind of finding, you know, other people have these same problems a little bit. I mean, going out a little yeah. bit outside of herself. Yeah. Um, I have a lot to say about this one. Uh, Go for it. Is, is my time now? Okay. Um, so the first thing is, uh, I'll, I'll preamble it with uh, one of the great things about songwriting that i didn't realize till much later is that it doesn't have to be i think as young songwriters we often try to be a lot more mysterious than we need to be so here's my embarrassing uh, encounter story my band got to open up for throwing muses in 91 92 okay. uh by this time they'd become a trio um and our management at the time got us this plum slot opening up for them at the paradise and i was just like uh, over the moon. I couldn't believe it. And first thing is their audience was amazing. Uh, it was one of the best shows we ever did just because to have an audience that is, is okay with being challenged and, uh, and also open-minded at the same time is, is great. But, um, the paradise has tiny little backstage areas and they're interconnected or it did at the time. It has more now, but of course I was going to go and try and meet her, you know, and, um, and I had prepared, my fanboy question for her. Uh, and, uh, and so I pop, pop into their dressing room. She, they invited me into the dressing room and I was like, Hey, and she was so nice. She's like, Oh, do you want some yogurt? You know, like they had just yogurt and grapes because she travels with her kids. Um, and we talked a little bit. She was incredibly kind. She said, Oh, look, we, we sold the place out. Like meaning both of us. I'm like, yeah, we had nothing to do with it. I promise you. Um, but uh, so I so I said, uh, there's a song on your new record called Dirty Water. And I was listening to it a lot. And, and I thought, you know, man, is this about infidelity and like the complications of being interrelated? And she's like, no, the pipes in our house were broken. And uh, so and I was like, oh, my God, I was so embarrassed. And uh, 
she wasn't saying it meanly, but she was just very matter of fact, like, no, of course it's not about that. It's about the, the water coming out of the pipe was dirty. Um, so I say that because reading her memoir, Rat Girl, uh, or Paradoxical Undressing, as it's also called, um, uh, which we'll get to as well, because she says, I'm always so hot and it's hot in here. That's ties into paradoxical undressing. But this first part of the song, I could be a smack freak and hate society. I could hate God and blame dad. I might be in a Holocaust, hate Hitler. All of that and the following three lines came from an interaction she had with a person on the street who was handing out pamphlets about, uh, it's not even clear what the pamphlet was about, but he just started ranting to her about like, do you think Hitler was the problem? No. If, you know, you just hate him because you, they just hate him because they were there. It's like, oh, uh, well, okay. But, but the, the seed of what he was saying was, um, the, the hate comes from within. And obviously that's, you know, that's, that's what he was trying to sell, quote unquote. But he said all this stuff to her and she went back and, and wrote this first part of the song, which she calls a normal song because it didn't come from, it didn't come from the, the double concussion she received that made the songs happen to her. It just came from, uh, uh, sitting down and writing. So, so this first lyric, which seems so incredible and so heavy is just her repeating something somebody said on the street. Uh, and I say, I say just in quotation marks, that doesn't belittle it at all. Like that's, it's yeah. the whole experience was incredible. But, but when I first read that, I was like, Oh man, it just came from that. And then I was like, no, that's better. Like she took that thing and turned it into this and then into this rest of this song. And, uh, and now we'll take a sideline into talking about uh, David Narciso and Leslie Langston, because their playing on this is so incredible. I don't think because I love this song so much for the lyrics, I don't think I ever really noticed until this week what they're doing here. After you get to, you know, I could be a neuro hate sweat. No, I hate my way. The song stops. That part of the song stops and it becomes something else. And it's the same three chords for the rest of the song. Like that's it for the rest of the song. But through each part, the bass and drums accent different things, have different levels of intensity, all at the same volume. So it's all in the rhythm, and in Leslie's case, into how she chooses to do her notes. Sometimes she's playing basically a lead line. Sometimes she's just kicking with the kick, dunk, 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 to accent the vocal. And it creates this thing that is so powerful. Um, and and it would be you know close to as powerful if Chris was just singing it by herself. But but the way that it comes in and out, you know, like I make you into a song. Again, referring back to what she did with the first part of the song. She took this guy and made him into a song. Um, that part's kind of sensitive. You know, it's like, I can't rise above the church. I'm caught in the jungle. I'm always so hot and it's hot in here because she was, she had this, she had some problems with schizophrenia and, and this heat thing. She couldn't sleep at night. Like all this stuff that comes up again, all the songs. Um, there's a lot of stuff about being awake in the morning and awake, awake and can't sleep. Um, but it gets intense and intense and it's like, I'm a slug, I'm TV, I hate. And then this, this last moment, a boy was tangled in his bike forever. I won't read the whole thing, but it, when it gets to the most vocally intense moment, it just kills me because she says, so I sit up late in the morning again. She's probably been up all night <laughs> and ask myself again, not why do they kill children? How? Like, <sighs> Uh, I just, I think I cry every time 
that happens. And, uh, and then without the, the guitar music changing at all, the drums and bass come way down for that last line. And it's just, uh, it's so powerful. Yeah. All right. So should we get scores? Yeah. You'll be amazed to find that this is not my 10. <laughs> this is my eight. This is my 10. Uh, nice. This is a nine. I gave it a nine. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Um, next song is Vicky's Box. on this and you know what uh, i'll do the best i can i it this to me feels uh like a tr- uh, a man who feels like like a trans this is like a transgender issue where in the beginning he you know is remembering all the these things that he did obviously younger um and there was something about the way he says uh his eyes and his hair and the lyric says it again here, but like he looks like a man, but he's not inside. And so then, mm-hmm. and then when it gets to, I think I made a line to where the music changes dramatically. Yeah, after the after the welcome home part, like yeah. he. So the way I saw this, then he becomes he becomes a woman, and then the rest of the song is this transition mm. into that, and then where it's not in any way that in and of itself has its own problems. Uh, because there's references to the kitchen and uh, lots of other uh, painful to remember like today. So it, it didn't, in a lot of ways, it didn't get any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but at least, I guess, in a way, he was who he, they were who they thought they should be. I, man, thing? I didn't get any of that out of the little lyric. So really? Kudos to you, man. <laughs> that, no, that's exactly um, why I, I threw it over to you, because I'm like, I don't understand this. And I just think, because a lot of the, and I'll say, I, I meant to say it and call me, musically, this doesn't sound like 1986. Like, if you handed me this yeah, today sure. and didn't tell me any, gave me no context whatsoever, and said, when do you think this was recorded? I, 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 I Last week. I mean, it has, while there's definitely musically some, you would say, influences from you know, Bauhaus, Susie and the Banshees on some of it. Um, and a new wave, there's a lot of kind of that, that pop new wave stuff. But I would, I wouldn't have, I would not have said that it was, that this was made then. And, and this, and this, and this, and if, and I'm, once again, I, I, these are my interpretations of these transgender issues would not have been nearly the hot topic in 1986 that they are today. Yeah. So, and that, and there's a couple of occasions where I think she's, she's timeless in her, you know, as, as, as almost as being ahead of her time. She, her, the topics are timeless and she's capturing them in 1986 and the relevance has, is, is as important or more important today. So I yeah. have, I have two notes here. The first one was that bass riff. Yeah. Second was 
Wayne, do you think that Kristen listened to the Raincoats? Because we just we just did an episode mm-hmm. on the Raincoats debut record. I'd be shocked couple, if she did. Couple, couple, yeah, a couple months ago. So, yeah, same. Yeah. All right. Um, I will. I will say. Yeah, I'll just say this. And uh, in, in reference back to what I said before, also on a certain level, don't trust the songwriter when they tell you what the song is about, because this is what she says about this. Dirty song. pipes. My ro- <laughs> my roommate. <laughs> My roommate Vicky painted some cool stuff on a box, and some of it turned up in a song. That's what she <laughs> says about this song. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I love this one. It's it's my six. Uh, it's just got such a great feel to it, and it feels a lot of these songs feel like a car just rolling down a hill with no brakes, and uh, it's very exciting. And I've always loved that last line: "A kitchen is a place where you prepare and clean up," which just seems like uh, it could be a metaphor for any part of life. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Wayne, your score? Uh, eight. I think the the bass on this uh, is absolutely amazing, and it and it, it never goes away. I, I was fixated on throughout the whole yeah. song. All right. This is my five. All right. All right. Next song, Rabbit's Dying. Usually you get extra points for cowbell. <laughs> yeah. But this is definitely my least favorite song on the record. I just didn't connect with this one. Um, is the cowbell too high? Was that the problem? It's no, not one of those low cowbells? No, it wasn't low cowbell. It was high cowbell. <laughs> yeah. The small one for, no, for just, a calf. I just never got into this. Um, and yeah. and it wasn't the, the lyrical thing because there's a couple... There's a couple songs on this that I'm just going to defer to you guys because I'm like, I don't know what this. But this one, I definitely, I don't know what this means. Well, and here's the thing. So I did, I, this was another one, the two distinct parts. Like the first part, I'm not so high on. The second part, musically, I was much better on. And so I didn't, what's again? But I liked, so Rabbit's Dying, I instinctively, I guess based on my age, remember the rabbit died was a way of, and I did not know that she was pregnant. So, uh, yeah. it all, it made so much more sense. I actually finally feel like he's not going to be able to contradict what I said. I think I got this one. Uh, but <laughs> I, so this felt like it was about a pregnancy and I love the way she, but she wrote it from the perspective of the rabbit, like, and the, and she just, and all this anxiety that's in this rabbit that's running for its life. Uh, it all goes into that that pregnancy thing and the unknown and all of the things that are going to come with that are all wrapped up in this in this just a unique perspective I guess is what I had to give it some more points for because I I thought that was a, a unbelievably unique perspective to go through on on this and then by the way the rabbit always dies because they have to kill it to find out if the ovaries were enlarged by the that's just a by the way. What came? Yep. What came first, this song or Fatal Attraction? Because that's what I think <laughs> of with rabbits. 
<laughs> yeah, luckily I haven't seen that. So I don't know. Okay. Well. Uh, but I, I do. I, I've always thought that this had something to do with her being pregnant, even if uh, it's not completely direct in the lyrics. Um, and I've always loved the follow me home, follow me home to a lean to part. Like it's just that's possibly one of the catchiest moments on the record uh, in a traditional sense. Uh, but this, uh, at the end of the day, because the beginning part is kind of just not outside from the lyrics, there's not a lot there. Uh, this is, this is a low score for me. Okay. Uh, Wayne, what was your score on this one? Uh, five. Okay. And then Aaron? Three. And I mentioned this is my lowest, low score. Yes. All right. Next song is America. She can't say no. Mm-hmm. the significance so i i fixated on a couple of lyrics yeah what's the significance of finding shoes in the corner <laughs> uh my my first thought about that one is i i feel like there's a there's a strong rape undercurrent in this song Ooh. um or at least or at least the complicated uh nature of of young sex which is always uh skewed towards the man being in the power position Always, most often, I should say. Um, there's that line, uh, he was doing it under the stars and I was crying again, run through with a sword simultaneously at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so follow the road, swallow a snake, find shoes in the corner, run away. Also knowing that she was a little bit transient when she was a kid, she used to just crash in flop houses and, and, okay. and do stuff. I, I think of that and she was obsessed with snakes, still is obsessed with snakes. Um, whether you want to make that into a okay. sexual innuendo or not. Um, find shoes in the corner, run away. For me, it almost seems like you got to get out now, wherever you are. Like, so it's just a real, uh, it's a, it's like a self-preservation tactic. Whatever, whatever you can find to put on your feet, get them and go. That's, here, that's what I, here that's how I was I hoping for some happy interpretation on it. <laughs> not on this one. No, Jeez. No. no. America can't say no. Yeah. Stand Wayne, up. She Wayne can't anything. Up. Yeah. My, and I was right along the same lines as him. I guess I, I took it bigger as I thought the girl being named America. And I think I felt like that, that kind of quasi punk Billy hoedown thing, especially in the beginning was absolutely a commentary on America. It felt like to me, but yeah, I definitely got that, that violence against women kind of uh, where it's almost, uh, accepted or propagated yep. was was the, that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also sort of America as a slut uh, part of it. America can't say no. As she can go both ways. She can't say no because she doesn't have a choice <laughs> to say no, or she can't say no. And looking scoping out to like the country itself as a slut, which I, I think there's room for that too. Um. <laughs> Yeah. And then there's a, so the cowpunk part of it, 
it's almost like yeah she this this song does a better version of what the follow me home to a lean to to a lean to does and then i've always found it notable that there's that stand up stand up refrain uh in this and which then leads us into the next song yeah. or no the next next song anyway yeah all right wayne your score I gave it a six. I also, like I say, I think that there was something about the way the lyrics were repeated that almost gave it like a this keeps happening feel, like where it kept mm-hmm. looping back around to this to saying this stuff she'd already said before, which once again, yep. unfortunately, how true. Yeah, Aaron, your score. This is uh, this is my seven. I think the chorus in this is just so good. The the rhythm of the vocal is just astounding, uh, and the way it works with everything else. Gotcha. All right, this is my four. Next song is Fear. The one thing that we haven't talked about is so her her vocals she has a little bit of this yodel sing song type effect <laughs> i don't even know how to describe there's it there's times where the the i kept hearing is it uh cindy from the b52s or kate pearson that does the the, the uh, basically the voice of the lobster on rock lobster <laughs> uh-huh. reminded me of. yeah the trill yeah yep interesting um you guys cool with the car horns and the car traffic I, I, you know what i used them to give it to give it to justify my lowest score i i got i i because i had nothing i didn't know what to do with anything um so i i thought that i i marked it down for the for the traffic sounds and the horns in the in the beginning and i think it comes in a little bit later um i thought it, it worked better yeah. later on yeah but this is a great song, and then and they use the finger snaps and the hand claps to to really ramp up the anxiety. I knew you were going to say something about the finger. They yeah. really it there, but they are used to maximum effect. Like it's, yeah. This is, I mean, you're like our heart will start racing. Like this song is, I I just felt like this was actually just about fear and an all encompassing, deep in your insides anxiety that you couldn't shake and not yep. necessarily about one certain thing it's just anxiety and fear that just overtakes you and you become fearful and afraid of everything yep yeah, hold you in my shins yeah. <laughs> right yeah this one for me is a little bit like the opposite of rabbits dying where the fast part I'm kind of like, eh, it's it's okay, but not it doesn't really hold up to the rest of the song or the rest of the record. Although I do love the way they they play with eighth notes. Well, there's a lot of eighth notes going on on the guitars and the drums, and then somehow they work against the vocal. Although it's not really technically polyrhythm, I think, but there's just yeah, it's maybe like Wayne was saying, it just is a heightened sense of tension that never stops until you get to the the slower part and. Um, and that part's the part I mentioned this earlier. So this one was my one for a little while. But by the time you get to stop talking, you hurt me and I'm not crying. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> you got me. Uh, and it's just, it's super powerful by the time it gets yeah. to the end. All right. Uh, should we get scores? Aaron, what's your score? 
That's a four for me. Wayne? I had to give something a one, so I gave it to this one. Yeah. Okay. And this is my two. And then next song is Stand Up. I assume this song was going to track high for Wayne since she drops the F-bomb in this one. <laughs> you disappointed me, Wayne. I saw your score. You disappointed me. Um, what What is it about this song that didn't track very high for all of us? It's For me, it's just a little bit like it feels less formed. And unfortunately for me, I know that it came earlier. Um, okay. It was on their first self-pressed seven-inch, and uh, it just feels a little dumb compared to the other ones. Okay. And I, I, I ultimately decided that it had to be my one based on the fact that on the original recording, at the very end, when they say, and I scream, they actually have a scream go, ah! at the end and i'm like well that's corny as heck even though it's not on the record i'm docking it down to a one uh because something has to be a one so that's my reasoning okay no worse reasoning than uh, a car horn or car traffic <laughs> right yes we're so, so. we're gonna use all the sound yeah. effects to to determine our scores yeah, exactly uh wayne anything on stand-up yeah i agree i think that i this one didn't track well because i i think some of the i guess there wasn't as a graphic, I mean, I guess saying fuck you isn't like in a lot of ways she said that many times without using those words. Uh, and I guess right. it just, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's shoes again. <laughs> there is shoes again. Yeah. Yeah. Wear shoes, jealous F you, stand up. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. Wayne, your score on stand up? Uh, two. Aaron? That was my one. This is my three. All right, next song is Soul Soldier. This was, I did see some info. This was released as a promo single. Did this get play in Boston at all? Not that I'm aware of. Um, they, yeah, I don't, I don't know the, uh, the story of it other than that. They, they did re-record it a year later for the fat skier okay. EP and made it eight minutes long with the addition of baby sounds. I'm not sure why uh, oh, they no. did that uh, because okay. yeah. Thank you for not sending that one over to us. Yeah, no problem. It just it didn't seem necessary. It's almost the exact same performance. I'm not sure. I guess they like this song certainly more than I do. Yeah. One thing that I I didn't mention um, earlier on. So when you had picked this record, 
I was like, um, yeah, all right, cool. Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's dive into throwing muses. Um, and so I immediately went to, to Spotify. I'm like, uh, it's not there. Yeah. So then I look on YouTube. It's not there. I found most of it. Yeah, I found most of it, but I'm like, I'll, I'll go, I'll go buy a copy of it then. Um, yeah, it's out of print. Yeah. It's expensive. If you buy it, try and buy it on eBay. Uh, even when they reissued it, when did they reissue it? Just a couple mm, of years ago, right? Maybe, yeah, like 2000 something, early 2000s. Uh, and, and that is super limited as well. So yeah. like, come on for AD, you need to release this out on the streamings so that yeah. people can, can hear this. But yeah, I don't know what the story with that is. Uh, curious, but, uh, if I still have a CD copy of this, I'll I'll send it to you because I have I have the reissue and I have the LP. So okay, all right. So so you were you, luckily you had copies of all of these these songs, so you sent it over to Wayne and I so that we could actually listen. This yeah. is only the second time that we've had this this happen, Wayne. If you remember yeah. our John Bryan episode. Also not available on on Spotify. Was that meaningless? That record? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. What's funny is accessibility <laughs> makes such a difference though, because it was on this on uh, Dropbox. I had to whenever the it would stop, I'd have to go and start the next track. Right. Dropbox. Is and so it horrible way of listening to music. Yeah. It it made it difficult to listen to unless I had because I, I I like to listen to it in the you know in my truck on my way home I like to you know at work mm-hmm. and so it it made it, so accessibility really does play a big part in in because I mean it would have I previous albums you just listen to them I can listen to them four or five times in a day on Spotify and this one yep. I mean it was yep. worth the effort but it was effort and like I say I felt like yeah. I always felt there were times when I felt like I was missing something where it would have transitioned quicker and I might have gotten something, right. you know, especially on those songs we were talking about where there's there's little connections between each of them, whether musically or lyrically, mm-hmm. then I, I would have liked to have been able to feel that flow a little bit easier. Yeah. And not to mention, they you know, they would have gotten into actual, you know, full scent value, I think, between the three of us listening to it over the past few weeks. So... They would have made some yeah. big, big coin on that. They would have gotten out of the fractions of pennies and into actual pennies. Right. Because I listened to I listened to this album at least four times. Wayne, you probably do the same thing. I think your process is pretty similar to mine. I listen to it at least ten times. I might I usually when I got nice. it on Spotify, I'll listen to it a dozen times. That would have garnered throwing muses at least eleven cents of revenue. <laughs> I think so. And that's a shame. I was looking online during yeah. the interview portion to try to find some Throwing Muses shirts, and I found a couple of cool ones. I'm going to have to try to find a way to... Oh, uh, nice. A claw. All right, well, we'll give give Kristen a little revenue stream from sure. Wayne's uh, shirt addiction. <laughs> nice. All right, anything, anything on this one? Oh, uh, I just think, yeah, I do think this one is probably another pregnancy song. You know, she needs her soul soldier. It's 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 a corny enough idea compared to everything else that it feels a little bit like 
this might be, you know, she might also the fact that it's the only one of these songs uh, along with the next one that, that wasn't demoed uh, a couple of years prior. Um, makes me think there's a little of that in there. It's not my favorite song. I'm not even sure quite why I rated it as high as it did. Although I love the instrumental section, uh, after the first chorus. Uh, so that might've been the, the, the bit, the instrumental of this is a little more interesting to me than the actual song. Um, but it's, it's a nice, I think it's important to have this moment. It comes down from the frantic uh, nature of the first eight songs uh, leading into what we'll talk about next, the last song. I think it probably is an important transition song, and it's got some great lyrics in it as well. Uh, and again, interesting, uh, going back to whatever, the, was it the first song or the second song that had the one about we line up and get mown down and then here you have he crawls along the battlefield the sky spitting shells so she's got a lot of uh, a lot of combat imagery going on along with swallowing things and shoes right <laughs> and shoes. god don't forget the shoes and i yeah the the reason the reason why this tracked higher for me was because of that instrumental so good portion i i i, I liked it yeah. Oh, and also the oh, the the only song with ride symbol. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. I didn't even catch that. Yeah, this one it's there's two different I wouldn't say parts, but there's two different styles. Um, and that first part, the the quicker, where he gets to use those floor times, you can really feel his concert drumming. You know where where he got that in that he's definitely David is definitely the star instrumentally of that of that first faster section because this yep. was, you know right off the start the cut that kills the knife is sexual i don't i'm not i'm not backing off of that statement at all um but it it really forms this there's like this whole relationship from the beginning where you're young and it's it, it is very sexual and very passionate it's all in that that first that first uh, section of lyrics, and then, and then the battlefield metaphors. I mean, it, it's it's it, for lack of a better word, exciting. I mean, young love is exciting and dangerous, and uh, and then when it when that part ends, it gets very sweet. And that part of being in love, the the music gets very ethereal. And the and her voice gets very soft, and it's very sweet about she loves him, she loves him, she needs her soul soldier, um, and then it then it picks up again, and and it, uh, very similarly musically to that first part, and then then it starts to go back and forth between them, which is an absolute roller coaster, which is mm-hmm. so along the lines of a relationship, and then I mean, and then at the towards the end, she's saying, "Damn you!" I mean, it's. One part is damn you, and then it gets soft and sweet again, and she needs her sweet soul soldier. So it just, I thought that part of it was fucking brilliant. I, I love, I gave it a three, and I don't, once again, I, I, musically, it does a lot of dynamic. I mean, it's, it's, it starts out with this really cool, these heavy, deep, bassy drums, and then that ethereal part, and then, then it starts to ride back and forth. I don't know why it's a three, but. I, yeah, that's what that, got. that sweet part that you talked about, I didn't think that it was a sweet part. In fact, it reminded me of Say Anything, where she's playing that song of Joe Lies when he cries. <laughs> Joe Lies. That's, oh, she, that's, that's what I got out of that one. I'm like, that's not sweet. Mm, see, I, I, yeah, I, but she, she loves him. She, she all, she, all she needs is her soul soldier. 
I love I love how we're all interpreting this totally. Yeah, different. I I it's great. I gra- I gra- I definitely still gravitate to the the she's singing to the child inside her thing because uh, I I actually had to look this up because I always thought it was damn you, damn you, goddamn you, but it's Dan you, Dan you, goddamn you, with Dan you being an Irish goddess. Uh, so I think whether or not it's a relationship, who the relationship is with, it's a. Uh, it's sort of the the divine and the oh boy what a mess this is no matter how much I might love it uh, aspect just kind of fighting with each other that's yeah that's how I'm I'm taking it like oh, she's she's decided to have this child and she's thrilled about it but also what is her life going to be like and she's she's just got a record deal and you know right. all the things that are supposed to make her career happen and then she's going to have a child. Which the world doesn't really well, accept. I, I, as a father, that relationship is very similar. It starts out right. very, very great and fun, and then it's <laughs> damn you, uh, you're so sweet, I love her. God damn you. So yeah, it, that, yeah. Once again, I think this this tracks either way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is my nine. This is my nine. Wayne, your score. I gave it a three, and I once again, I just this is my three. Unfortunately, this is right this is my <laughs> it's my five. And at the time after after listening one more time this morning, I was like, why did I make that a five? That could have been my three. So, yeah. Wayne, I'm, bal- I'm balancing you out. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. All right. Uh, let's wrap this up. Last song is yeah. Delicate Cutters. Yeah. It's just the lack of time I keep reaching out, lashing. It's just the lines run down the walls I can't believe they never fall The walls never leave And the walls begin to scream And this is this is so I don't know. I felt like this is so unlike anything else on this record. Yeah, it absolutely is. Where you you have to, from a sequencing standpoint, you kind of have to put this on as the last song yeah. because if you put this in the middle of the record, I think people would be just like, "Whoa!" Yeah. But if if you divorce her performance from the track, it's right. It's right in the same. Ball, like if you took a, sure. one of her performances, the vocal performance, I mean, that's what is so striking about it for me. It's, it's just like, it's a powerhouse of a, of a, a so-called ballad, but that ain't no ballad. <laughs> yeah. This is not a ballad. Yeah. And maybe we should point out, yeah, it's just, just acoustic guitar and vocal for people who are not hearing it uh, for the whole song. This is one actually that it was okay for me to figure out a sound clip because the musicality of it, it's pretty, pretty much the way that you hear it throughout the song. Yeah. So there, this is not, this is the, the, the least prog song on the record. Yeah. Yeah. It's three chords, bunch of lyrics. Right. So yeah. Wayne. I can say I, um, this is almost all her, I think there, uh, but the way they use Tanya, there's some floor Tom. Yeah. yeah those are, they, they really create like it sounds like thunder. Like you know it's drums, but yeah, it's it really creates that atmosphere. And then 
Uh, perfect. The few yeah. times that Tanya sings in those those background vocals actually just I don't know it it it's just the whole thing is very haunting and and very powerful and like I say I as far as to say what each line meant I couldn't I guess what I fixated on was how she kept changing uh person in uh, so from first person to mm-hmm. second person to third person through the whole thing kind of mixing them one right after the other and it really yep. uh, just captured this this uh, insanity like this just very like confused uh you know coming at things from all these different directions and she just once again it musically it's very you know lush it's it's simple but it's got all of this this great feel to it and then you listen to this you know it's you we she it's all but it all feels like it's the same person from each direction yeah and the openings and the closings there's very variable versions of things that are open and closed it's it is a very uh unresolved song uh in a really nice way and for me yeah there's it's just a, it's 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 almost like, and, and I, and somebody knew this, uh, whether it was the band or, or, uh, I vote for AD, like it is sort of like stripping everything that this band is down to its, its essence, uh, being Kristen, uh, which is, you know, for sure. it's her, it's her band. But like we said earlier, they're, they're indispensable, but you, you get this last moment of, what a ride it's been and it's not over <laughs> and we haven't come up with answers, but that's okay. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of, there's a song, uh, two records later called mania, which she gets a little bit more directly into the, the problems she had with, with bipolar, which may or may not have been diagnosed correctly. Um, and there's a little, there's a bit of that in there too. Uh, of this person trying to figure out how to have a relationship with their own brain. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. That's a heavy topic in itself. Yeah. Which is sort of what all art is at a, at its base yeah. level. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, this is my six Wayne, your score. Um, I'm on my notes. It says nine, but I know I use that already. So the only number I have left is eight. <laughs> I'm glad I caught that because I don't want to be the guy who says nine twice. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, it just like yeah. Say, I was going to call you out on your nine earlier, but um, <laughs> I just let it. I, I, let I caught you know. it in time. Yeah, Aaron, yeah. your score. So this is my ten, and uh, it may seem like a strange ten on the surface, but uh, uh, but Not but an eight, nine, and ten were all neck and neck and uh and the reason i opted for this for my 10 aside from the fact that i've always loved this song is that it seems to me to be the song that Kristen has held on to longest from this record they they dropped these songs from the set list pretty uh, most of these pretty quickly once they sort of started making records as a regular which i understand for two reasons one was she was a kid when she wrote them and two, like they'd been a band for four years already at this point. So that's those yeah. songs had already been played quite a lot. Um, but she typically ended shows with this uh, for a long time. And it was it, just like with the record, it was an incredible way to end a show because you've just been Powerful. pummeled for, for an hour and a half. And then she comes out and does this. And everybody at this point knows it and expects it. And it's uh, so I've seen her play it half a dozen times. And 
And so and it's always been great. So that's my 10. And that's why. Yeah. Cool. Did we cover everything? Did we miss anything? I think uh, I got all my kicks in. I got my various quotes. Oh, wait, I might have missed one little. I have one more quote from Kristen, which uh, which uh, now, in hindsight, you being a good director, I realize I should have saved the other one uh, for last. But, uh, but here's another one uh, from her about music. Fully engaged efforts toward life pummel the universe into a shape that suits them. Much more vague, but uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, but a good punctuation yeah. mark. Yes, yes, yeah. Let's look at our top five based off of our scores. Yeah, what do you guys think is number one. Uh, that's probably delicate cutters, depending on which way uh, eight, his eight or nine. Went. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm gonna let Wayne have two nines <laughs> for this one. So um, that. That ended up being our third. So Call Me was the average score of nine. Speaking of nines. Okay. Uh, that, was our av- that was our top. And then Hate My Way is second. Third is Delicate Cutters. And then we've got Vicky's Box, which is fourth. And because Wayne gave me revised scores this morning, <laughs> he knows how much I love revised scores. No. Uh, we, have a, we have a tie up for fifth. Which is America, She Can't Say No, and Soul Soldier. Great. So, I fully endorse that America, top five. She Can't Say No uh, was not in our top five. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Top six. Top okay. six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Aaron, this <sighs> has been cool. Yeah, I've had a blast. Yeah, this was great. Like I say, uh, having only listened to them cursory, I've... I'm listening to these guys a lot. Great. I actually, I listened to the record after this and plan to like throwing muse is a, something I listen to regularly. Great. And if I can, if I can pitch, uh, as a, as a long time fan, uh, their, uh, their record limbo from later in their career okay. is a real highlight. And then recently they had a record called purgatory and paradise, uh, which is basically like a, a post punk prog, concept album uh it's not prog a post-punk concept album uh that i really love as well so they're they've been at it excellent so we got referred to you from dean from red wanting blue so we always ask our our guests yeah i love dean we do too uh in fact um this week he sent me a frank zappa record in the mail because he, he, I think he really wants me to be <laughs> nice. a Zappa fan. So it's 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 uh, it's sitting yeah. it's sitting up there. It's getting ready to be queued up here sometime next week. So, um, mm-hmm. so so he referred us well, over to yeah. you. So who do you know that I don't know who should come on this podcast that you that uh, you would refer? Us well, to? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't refer Paula, my musical and life partner, because she's a genius Perfect. and uh, she has very different and uh, exceptional taste in music. Uh, okay. So she'd be great. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I could think of others, but now that you've, yeah, great. Uh, but now that you've mentioned the Frank Zappa thing, I was also going to suggest that you have me and Dean on to talk about Frank's one size fits all record. Okay. 
This this sounds that's like a, that's a self reference, but this sounds like a uh, a, a future live stream <laughs> event that we should do, Wayne. Oh, now you're talking. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I remember when you were talking about Frank with Dean on the show, and and he was saying it's hard to figure out what period to pick from, and so I immediately thought of One Size Fits All as both being a very accessible record and also being kind of right in the middle of his most okay. between his most. Uh, uh, fecund periods of quality love it all right so aaron where can people find all your happenings you out on the uh, socials i i don't do a lot of socials uh instagram is kind of my place i guess i think i'm betty goo there i think um that's where i do most of my okay stuff because i like that it's it's just kind of visual and not terribly interactive twitter i i I canceled my Twitter, uh, my main Twitter, because it was too, I just felt too, I felt like too much information was happening. So I got out of that. Um, and then Facebook, I don't really do much. You have, a, you have a website for any of your projects? I do have it. I do have a, an AaronTap.com, but given the world as it is now, I don't really keep up with it much because there's not much. Not much cause for anybody to go to my website, you know, just, but find me on Spotify, Frank Shirts, Betty Goo. Uh, my two bands and I'll be, if, if all goes as planned, I'll actually be releasing my first ever solo record in probably June. Fantastic. Called gone, gone, gone. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's wrap this up. So as a reminder, you can find all of our old episodes. If you go to records, revisit podcast.com, we're on the socials. I'm on the Facebook page to search for records, revisit podcast or on Twitter at podcast records can also find us on patreon we just started that up uh recently if you go mm. and uh become one of our patrons depending on what level you could become a guest on our podcast uh but everyone who signs up um is going to be um invited to our first ever live stream event on may 18th when we talk about london calling with ira elliott of not a surf and potentially a another guest if he's not recording with a certain band called gbv well i just gave the the (laughs) initials on that all right so fingers crossed fingers crossed on that all right wayne you're on the instagram where can people find us Records Revisited Podcast. And then, of course, go find us on all the podcast platforms. Go subscribe and rate or review us. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. I would tell you to go to a live show, but um, there aren't a whole lot of those. So go find your favorites if they're doing any live stream events. Make sure you buy a T-shirt of the band. Buy a record. Can go visit a record store. Just mask up and be safe out there. Um, Or, you know... Do, do the online sale thing where I'm buying way too many records, Wayne. All right. <laughs> we are Records Revisited, and we are... Ow! Ouch! Ouch.